putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay, produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers united. We must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pores to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. And welcome to Creatures of the Industry. Today we are interviewing Pat Preston. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning, Ralph. And uh, we're going to be assisted today by Peter Clark from the Union's Occupational Health and Safety Unit to talk about uh, Pat's... uh, Contribution to Occupational Health and Safety. Good morning, Peter. Hello, Ralph. How are you? Good. Now, before we get on to the the big topic of occupational health and safety, let's talk about Patrick. Now, Paddy, when did you first come into the industry and where did you start? It would be around about the mid-60s. I was... uh, on the Brooklyn Hostel, actually, uh, just come over from the UK in those days, demobbed from the Navy and decided to come over to uh, uh, a better style of living. And uh, on the hostel there, there was a, quite a few people who were in the same boat I was in, uh, looking for uh, a good job and a good quid. And, uh, you know, the guy just up the hut for me was uh, working in the building industry uh, and just about all the way around. They were either working in metal construction or or general civil building or whatever. So uh, I my first job was actually in a factory in Footscray at Spartans Paints and uh, after two weeks I couldn't hack that. Um, and I think I was the only one at that time in the in the factory who could speak English and, you know, you're going into the Smoko uh, shed at one time, you felt like... Uh, you know, you, you was completely on your own, so it was great to uh, to get into uh, into construction. And uh, one of the lads says, uh, oh, look, uh, good job going down the refinery, they're building the refinery down in Altona. Come down tomorrow morning, they're looking for riggers. You know, and to be quite honest, I didn't even know what a rigger was, uh, apart from, you know, rigging in the Navy, and that's what was in the back of my mind. Oh, I can splice, I can do that, I'll go down for the job. And uh, went down, and there was a guy, I think it was Ian, Ian Brome, I think his name was, who was a rigger, you know. Uh, uh, he was a painter in the old country and a rigger in the new country. And uh, we gets down there, and uh, this Dutch uh, this Dutch bloke, um, you know, oh, yeah, you're a rigger, are you? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got a nice new um, ex-army belt on with a, a, a scaffold key in one and a podgy in the other. I didn't know how to use them, but I had them on because I was told that's what you need to go down wearing them. Oh, OK, climb up there. Get up on the top there and onto, you know, on that vessel there. So I did. I climbed up, shit myself all the way, but I went up because I wanted the job. Come, down, come back down. Yeah, you'll do. Got a job. Uh, I had, you know... Around about three months' work on good money, and that sold me into the you know in, into the construction industry. I thought, oh yeah, this is great. The crew was good, although it was like a United Nations, but it was good. You know, a good crew. Um, there's a lot not to be said about uh, the conditions there, but um, the money was all right. Uh, a bit rough, was it? Uh, yeah, well, you know, if you thought was uh, Smoko. Uh, your smoko shed uh, sitting on a bag of bolts with all the tools and gear around, bolting up guns and everything around you. You know, that was, uh, uh, you know, that was your smoke. You could, they had hot water, uh, but you took your own uh, uh, coffee with you and things of that nature and, of course, take your lunch with you. And at the time, it was great because the hostel used to, used to give you a bag meal to go to work with, so that was all right. I, I was well-fed sort of thing. Uh, but, yeah, I think I lasted... Close to three months there, and uh, and I just went from there. You know, that was world service. I ended up from there uh, picking up with uh, John Thompson's boilers, a job up in Coburg. Conditions were shit there as well, just the same. But, uh, you know, money was good there and plenty of overtime. Uh, I think I went from there to a couple of other John Thompson's. Oh, that's right, yeah. Went with Thompson's down... Um, in Yarraville, that's right, Yarraville, when they were building a, a plaster factory. Otherwise, otherwise known as CSR today. Something like that, yes. yeah. Yeah. Uh, But this was, the, you know, it was the, the ground was clear and to yeah. build the factory, and I, I went there as a rigger as well. To be honest, I wasn't a rigger's arsehole. I was watching every, what everybody done and, you know, handy bully, chain block and things like that. It was, you know, it was great. And... Uh, yeah, Thompson's, uh, ah, Mecca Construction. I ended uh, on a um, deep sewer contract, uh, and that was really some shit job. Uh, going towards uh, Tullamarine. The jet port wasn't there at the time. That was something new. But it must have been in preparation for that because it was, the, the sewers were going up that way. Again, uh, you wouldn't say much about the... Uh, the general conditions are get bolting up shed, uh, sit on bags of cement, you know, uh, sitting on uh, uh, tall bags, anything like that for your lunch, for your, sm- for your smoko. Uh, safety, well, the backhoe uh, and the excavator was digging out and then lowered the, uh, the concrete pipe sections down into the trench and it was a reasonably deep trench. Every now and then uh, they'd throw the explosive hessian mat over uh, where some charges had been laid and uh, the uh, the hooter would go and uh, you might be down the other end uh, in in the in the pipes putting a bit of compo on the joints and then boom can you imagine the rush of air coming down and you know that was pretty good safety condition sort of thing <laughs> and uh, you know that lasted a, a few weeks and I think in one year I had uh, 13 jobs. That's what the construction industry was like. You went from one to the other. When the job was finished or near finished, you just got the arse. 
there was no sort of uh, week in lose and that sort of thing, although the, with the metal construction a year or two later, down in the Altona area, there was uh, a big blue for week in Lou and uh, a shop steward at the time, I think, Jimmy O'Neill. The one and only. Was, you know, pushing all sorts of conditions here and uh, there was a lot won in that area, I've yeah. got to say. It was really, I, I guess, one of the forerunners of decent conditions. In fact, uh, it was all summed up in the Altona area agreement. That's right, the Altona, remember, I remember... Yeah. A little bit later in life, uh, being on one of the negotiating teams for the Altona area agreement, and that was really some agreement. And uh, and it stretched out of the Altona area, and it was sort of widened and widened and widened. Uh, I remember working at uh, in Spotswood at one time at, I think it was Shell, uh, and we managed to stretch the Altona area agreement to there. So. Yeah. Eight kilometres from the intersection <laughs> of Miller's Road and Corroy Creek Road. But I've got to say, um, in those days, you were employed by the by the builder, by the contractor. So you wasn't a subby or a cash in hand or something that didn't exist in those days. You were actually a, a worker for that company. So you, you knew who the boss was and you knew if you had a blue, you knew who the blue was with... Um, but, uh, yeah, look, uh, I sort of... Um, uh, so you worked around building construction, civil construction, metal construction. Yep. The whole gambit, you know, yeah. from bricklayers labour where you worked your guts out. And, yeah, as I was saying a little while earlier, I, I remember one time on a, a bit of a housing estate working for an Italian brickie. Good bloke, I've got to say that. They were good bloke, but worked the shit out of you. And uh, and conditions were so good that uh, you sat on the on the pile of bricks for your you know for your smoko and whatever, and took a flask with you if you wanted a drink, or or drunk out the tap uh, what you used for mixing up the mud. But uh, and if uh, it got a bit hot, uh, well, I remember one time <laughs> I thought I was to I, I thought I had heat stroke and jumped into forty four gallon drum of uh, of water with all the shit and everything and called off and. Uh, uh, and I was feeding two brickies and their mate, which ended up free and that, on that day. I haven't forgotten that. Uh, got it calling off and they're screaming at me, more mud, more bricks, more mud. So you can imagine. Uh, that was the conditions. Uh, you'd done three or four days' work and uh, uh, then you had to uh, meet them in the pub to get paid. And then you didn't work for a couple of days and then uh, they'd want you again. You know, that was the sort of uh, the way it was. What sort of money would have you made then, Pat? Uh, it was good good money uh, for, for those days, you know, $40, $50 a week, you know, uh, which was, you know, good money, you know. Yeah. Uh, bearing in mind, you know, uh, uh, your rent in those days was only about 20 bucks a week. So, you know, it was, it was different times than it is now. Where so after all of this uh, introduction to construction, where did you... Uh, Get on to a, your first really big job, do you think? Um, I think the Westgate, because most of the jobs I had uh, lasted for, you know, a week or two or three months and something of that nature. The, the Westgate was really the big the big job and uh, uh, I only got that by a fluke of uh, a mate of mine who I used to drink with. Uh, I'd got started there as a, as a truck driver, actually. 
Brian Moore, a really great bloke. Mm. Uh, and sadly, he's no longer with us. But he, he, um, uh, he says, come down with me. Uh, they want they want riggers on the job. Come down with me tomorrow morning. I introduce you. So, you know, down I went uh, on the Spotswood side of the river, down by where the old uh, paper, the golf course and the paper uh, place was. It was a windy day when I got down there. There's all this black shit blowing around. I thought, where the fuck, where have I come from? <laughs> it was like old um, uh, sandy sort of uh, filings from a uh, from, uh, foundry, you know, where they've all been dumped down there. So this was on the east or west side? Uh, on the west on the, on the, on west, the west side. side. Spotswood side. Yeah, uh, Spotswood side. And uh, I got started there as a rigger the first couple of days. I'm in the shed running down bolts. Uh, you know, so they're free and easy for when you, you need to use them up top. And then uh, general builders labouring, uh, preparing um, concrete plimps for putting force work up for, for building an overhead gantry. And there was a, one team was uh, were metal workers were manufacturing the the gantry on site, uh, and our team was uh, doing the preparation for putting the gantry up and then erecting the gantry. And I was, you know, it was okay uh, there until it came round to uh, the actual physically erecting steel. And then I found, well, fuck, this is hard. (laughs) Uh, Especially when you, when uh, you know, there's just a couple of columns up and uh, and cables uh, with turfers on connecting those, holding those columns up to anchor points in the ground, uh, and you was expected to climb those columns, you know. Uh, I can remember a couple of the riggers there, the Paddy Hannaby, uh, Benny Creaney. Paddy had just come over from uh, from the old country. Benny Creaney, I think he'd just come over from the old country. It was, you know, an Irish and Scotch crew. And, uh, you know, there I was pretending to be a rigger and, the, and they were real riggers, you know. <laughs> they really knew what they were doing. And I remember watching Benny uh, go up the column and I thought, fuck, he's a monkey, you know. Boom, up there. So I, I tried copying him. So I was I got away with it for a while, I must admit that, until um, Alex Brown uh, had me walking along the steel with a turf on my back. Uh, yep. And there I am. <laughs> oh, that's a long way down. A bit dodgy in, the, dodgy in the morning, but after in the afternoon after a trip up the spot, he, yeah, no worries. <laughs> So, you know, that was the way it was and in those wind, days. And the wind was always blowing down there. It was a shitty, windy, cold day, really cold, shitty place in the winter and stinking hot in the summer. But the spotty was down the road there for your counter lunches, so that got you through the day. Uh, and uh, there, there was uh, Donny Fraser, who uh, uh, a crane operator, and I've got to admit, absolutely fantastic crane operator. And once we started getting out the ground and up, uh, the quickest way to get up top, particularly when the concrete abutment there, the quickest way to get up top was ride the hook. That's how you got up uh, to the top because there was no walkway up to the top. No walkway, no scaffold, uh, no lifts. Not at that time. So uh, I learned how to ride the hook the hard way. You know, make sure your leg's straight, son. Yeah, you know, and, uh, yeah, okay, no worries going up. But occasionally Don used to like to have a little bit of a game with you. And I'll tell you, a 
quite often it was a sudden stop on the way down. Got a bit bouncy. <laughs> but uh, you ended up learning to trust him because you knew he, he knew what he was doing, you know, and uh, unfortunately uh, Donnie, uh, he left the job for a better job at those days, which was, if I remember right, the Collins Place and uh, he came off the off the top of Collins Place, unfortunately, the hard way. Um, but really, uh, he was a, one of those real good operators. Yeah, but... but uh, you had a couple of close misses down at uh, Westgate, didn't you? Yeah, well, uh, uh, they brought a six-tonne Cranville crane down. And I think uh, Alex, um, after teaching me a few lessons, like leave me on top of a column after being lifted up there on the crane and leave me sitting up there waiting to get down to teach me that this is height and this is how you work... Alec, uh, Alec Brown decided to put me on the Cranville. Well, I had no problem with that because uh, I'd actually driven a similar machine in Chatham Dockyard in, in England, so I know what they were like. I got on the Cranville and, uh, you know, really going good. And then uh, a, uh, a union bloke come up from uh, the other side of the river and said, what are you doing on that crane? You're in the wrong union. And that got stuck into me, so I had to go from the BLs to the FEDFA. Uh, yeah, the, the, who was it? Garney, Garney Allen, that's right. He'd, he was driving a, um, uh, a steam derrick, one of the old-fashioned steam derricks, a uh, uh, coal-fired derrick uh, in the casting yard on the east side. So I got on, you know, and I was doing OK for the, you know, a year or so into the crane all over the place, you know, uh, lifting a load here, there and so on. But one of the jobs I, I had was when they moved the gantry, they had these big steel columns. Um, you know, the gantry, what would it be, in the old, in the old uh, about 100 feet up, something like that. Yeah, And, the, der- be- and the derrick sat on the gantry. Yeah, and you had the gantry and then the small steel-wheeled steel uh, derrick. Uh, and um, one of the jobs was to move those columns... When we moved the gantry, you had to take the columns down because I, uh, that was supporting the concrete uh, units as well as the gantry, you know, take the weight. Uh, they were really hefty. You know, I think they would be somewhere around 10 tonnes, something like that, if I remember, the big circular columns. Uh, Stretching the old Cranville. <laughs> yeah, well, well it, was a, it, was a, it was a double lift with um, a winch on top to keep the weight of the columns when they released the bolts and for the uh, uh, Clark's hydraulic crane to take the weight. So as they release the bolts, the Clark is supposed to take the load or the most of the load and I would have part the load at the base uh, and the idea was to, as Clarky lowered down, I would be towing it out, take the weight and towing it out. Well, we'd done a, you know, a few of them like that. Uh, unfortunately, this time somebody uh, stuffed up inside the concrete uh, box. And I know it was, but I won't mention the name. But we abused him afterwards. But released the bolts before Clarkie had the weight. So uh, down come the column. Paddy Hannaby was actually dogging it at the time, uh, dogging the Cranville. And uh, he screamed at me to, you know, to, to get the hell out of here, well, you know, but not that sort of language. But he gave me such a fright, I jumped out the seat and run. But I think he jumped over the top of me, you know, with his legs in the air. Uh, down came the column on top of where I was sitting. So the crane was flattened right into the ground. 
And uh, Clarkie's crane was pulled over as well. With a guy by the name of Cookie was operating that. So uh, Paddy grabbed me, he says, come on, uh, and rubbed me all the way up to the spotty. So there we are, uh, had a, a few sort of refreshments to get our nerves back again while they were looking for our bodies under the, <laughs> under the heap of shit down on the site. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that was a near miss. That really was, that was uh, quite close. Actually, that was um, 12 months before the Westgate collapse. It was in October as well, so funny enough. Uh, so such a large incident and no-one got uh, hurt at all? Uh, no, no. Apart from we had to change our genes, yeah, but we was you know, okay. And uh, there was often things uh, happening. There was a, a 35-tonne um, hydraulic. I ended up driving it in the end. I managed to work my way up from the cravel to hydraulics and gantries and God knows what. But uh, on the job, uh, Theo was driving that and he put it over the side of the tip because the ground was shit ground and if you didn't have your, your outriggers well packed, you had that sort of thing. And we was always overlifting on the, with the cranes. In those days, there was a lot of overlifting. You know, it wasn't unusual to lift over, over the front, which is a no-no with hydraulics, uh, but you jacked up the, the chassis with uh, timbers. and uh, There's a lot used to happen. That was before crane certification come in. But uh, I was actually... Uh, on a job with the Cranville when the collapse happened, actually. Yeah. So what, what, on that particular day, where were you in proximity I was, to the uh, collapse? I was down at the base of uh, the column on Hyde Street. Mm. I just uh, dropped a load, actually, on the way down to some brickies. We were doing some block work uh, for a pumping station. I had a chat with them and then made my way down because uh, uh, Paddy, who was a leading hand rigger on the top, wanted me down there just before 12, and I knew why. It was to, to give him a quick exit up the road. Uh, so there I am. There, uh, about half an hour before, I'd watched Ian Miller go up, the uh, the engineer, Holland's engineer, so I tried to make myself look busy, you know, uh, when he went up. And uh, there I'm standing down at the side of the crane, looking up. Paddy's up the top. He's talking to a young apprentice carpenter, Ross, and Ian Miller, uh, and I think it was Tony, Tony Dimitri, one of the riggers. They were, they were on the walkway to having a chat. Lift went up and Paddy made a run for the lift and, uh, and a couple of the others and left Ross and Ian Miller on the walkway. And uh, just as uh, all hell broke loose, the noise up there, and at first I thought it was... Uh, something just coming off the side of the bridge because I, I was down under there one time when a ship bucket came down uh, because that's before we won uh, proper toilets up there but you know, it wasn't unusual somebody had packed with shits and that covered up you know, just in my mind I thought ah oh, they're throwing the fucking thing over again but then the noise all you know, uh, come and I'm looking up and shit there it was it was on the way down and uh, Eddie House another rigger who had actually just come down on the lift he sort of whooshed past me like a rush of air and he's, he just, like, flew through the air into the uh, uh, mesh fence behind us. And I'm hiding behind the counterweight of the crane and the, the rear wheels. You know, I just run behind there. So, uh, yeah, and uh, a few of the guys just landed uh, from the walkway in front of me. Well, Ian Miller landed in front of me and Ross landed in the swamp. Mm. So it was, you know, just one of those... 
it was one of those days where you never forget. You know, and then, of course, um, adrenaline kicks in and then you run in and do things that you would never, ever have thought about doing, but you do them. And being a skinny little bastard as I was at the time, they won the lead Nance um, got me to try to crawl under one of the boxes which was slightly in the swamp and uh, and flight, slightly flattened down because uh, and that was an hour or two after the collapse because the first aid shed was just under there. I wanted to see if uh, anybody had survived there. Well, I got a little way under it, but I couldn't get any further. And they had to pull me out by my feet because you couldn't get back. So I haven't, I haven't forgotten that. It's no. something that's imprinted in your... It's there in your mind forever, you know. You weren't claustrophobic, were you? Uh, you are now. I am now, mate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there was no safety management plan or no rescue procedures we in had, place? Or? We had blues for all sorts of things up to that time. And there's all sorts of things, one, because we was getting organised. You know, we had, like... Organisers coming down. Uh, Mark Marco uh, Madison was one. Of them. Yeah. He he was a, a regular visitor to us, and uh, there was a lot of things won. But safety wise, even though we'd had meetings about it and things were improving to what they used to be, uh, there's still a lot to be desired. You know, uh, simple little things. Um, for example, uh, you know, it's around the traps nowadays, and for. You know, for years, uh, people have been able to get safety footwear, overalls, shirts, strides, you know, workwear, bluey jackets. Well, we blued for everything of that on that job. We blued for overalls. We blued for safety footwear. Uh, and the bluey jackets, we had one hell of a blue for them. And what did John Hollands do? They went to the surface store and bought X... Um, service um, bluey-type battle dress tops and issued them out. And, and they were given us the nickname John Holland's Fusiliers. That's, you know, you, you imagine. <laughs> but coming from there, we actually got the Tasmanian bluey jackets because that was one of the blues, had to be Australian Tasmanian jackets. So, you know, there's a lot of wins on that job. Um, yeah. yeah, well, i got to say I was on the... Uh Southeastern purification plant in the early 70s and there was a flow-on of all those yep. benefits to other big jobs. I don't think people quite appreciate uh, the impact the Westgate had on pay, conditions, everything. Oh, no, tea and coffee, that was a blue. Yeah. And then milk. I mean, <laughs> once we started back after the collapse, milk was a blue. And, you know, th- then it was uh, the, the job was split east and west sort of thing. But the whole job blued for milk, uh, you know, it's, instead of, a, you know, you liked a bit of milk in your coffee. And, and so uh, it was negotiated a milk allowance. And it was the responsibility of the site committee to, uh, to organise the delivery of milk. And the Peggies would, you know, organise that. And that milk allowance grew into quite a sizable amount of money in the end. Of course, we had a committee meeting, you know, uh, uh, to decide what to do with it and took it to a mass meet. And it was decided that uh, any money over from that milk allowance we would use for the benefit of people, uh, you know, such as uh, a bed in the uh, Altona Hospital uh, or Williamstown Hospital. Uh, we even purchased a um, breastfeeding machine uh, thing for, for kids in the maternity hospital. Mm. 
all coming out the milk. You know, the, it became a good fundraiser for little things around. So we used it properly, but what was surplus, we, you weren't going to give it back, was you? No. So after Westgate, where did you go to then? Uh, I ended up with World Service for again for a little while on shutdowns. Uh, John Thompson's shutdowns. And then I got a nice, beautiful little job at the gas and fuel in Fitzroy on the crane there. That was keeping me quite happy for about three months. They're still cleaning up that site today. (laughs) (laughs) It was was an absolute mess, but the job was a doddle. But... uh, I'm just trying. I had a few jobs like that, and then I got the chance of. Uh, I think it was Eric Person, um, yes, uh, who was with the FEGFA at the time. There was Eric, Mick Clark, Malcolm McDonald, Stan Williams, uh, Smithy, Smithy. I'm trying to think the names. Yeah. Um, uh, approached us who we. I would have liked to start with a union. Right. Oh, no. And at that point, I will play a little reminder as to what's going on. You're listening to Creatures of the Industry, which is a concrete gang uh, project to try and basically record the oral history of people in the industry. And today we're talking to Pat Preston, and uh, we are, shall we say, now got onto the stage where you become a union official, Pat. That's right, yes. I ended up being taken on as an industrial officer, and um, one of the, uh, the first jobs I was given was to, uh, because I'd come from construction and uh, the FEDFA in those days wasn't a big construction union, it was more a um, power industry and boiler attendance uh, union, you know, because uh, in those days factories all had boilers, coal-fired, wood-fired, uh, diesel and so on, you know, so part of the job was to go and organise within the mobile crane area and see if I could get a couple of tower cranes into the bargain, but that that become almost an impossibility in those days, other than down in the Latrobe Valley, uh, where the FEDFA, through Mick Clark, actually managed to uh, win some tower cranes because of the, that was where they had influence. But mobile cranes uh, ended up my uh, my job, so I, I used to go out really early every morning. And get into the crane yards such as Clarkies, Water Rights, Bramble Southern Plant, Footscray Mobile, Geelong Mobile and so on. You get there early in the morning when the guys are turning up to go out on the milk run jobs uh, and that gave you the opportunity for recruiting and then finding out you know, if you could do anything. So at that time I managed to get on a little bit of a lurk which was in the award which Malcolm McDonald had shown me called an In Charge of Plant Allowance. I think it was about 9 or $10 at the time. And I found that I was able to win that on nearly every crane yard. Uh, so that gave me a little bit of a reputation. Oh, there's Pat down. Oh, we're going to get something. So, so I ended up with quite a lot of mobile crane yards. Uh, there was no crane hire award at that time, nothing at all. Uh, there was an agreement, uh, which was with Geelong Mobile Cranes, which then stretched to Elliot's cranes and so on. So there was a a crane hire agreement which was negotiated annually and then the crane hire award, a roping award, came from there. And I was sort of involved in all that, which, you know, sort of gave me a kick-off in the industry. 
So really, if uh, people listening uh, have a think about it, it really wasn't until the late 70s that crane hire developed into a distinct sector with its own award and so on. And That's correct. People don't quite always gather how much things have changed since the 60s and how long it took. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, crane hire then, uh, there was things what people got now you didn't have then. And we had, you know, blues and I had a blue over, um, you know, a lot of the crane operators were suffering from bad backs because the seats in cranes were shit out, you know, knocked the shit out of you. So we had a blue about um, for Bostrom seats in cranes, you know, proper supportive seats. I ended up, if I remember rightly, involving a trades hall health person at the time, Dr John Matthews, who'd done a, a proper inspection and survey and done water rights, clerks and so on. So we won him. We managed to win them into the award. Um, heaters in cranes, you know, in, in the actual crane cab. That was not known. Uh, air conditioners. You sat in a bloody uh, cab with glass all around you. didn't have air conditioners. We had some terrible blues about them. I remember one Bob Barry James Cranes uh, decided to, um, and they hadn't been going. You are going. now taking another trip down memory lane, aren't you? Yeah. Hey. They, they, they decided to, to uh, uh, they were a new crane company at the time. They'd started up in Ballarat from, a, yes. I think, from um, a wrecking yard. A panel beaters. Yeah, that's right. And uh, thought they, you know, uh, knew everything. And uh, Barry James actually wanted to do a deal. He'd done some sort of deal with these evaporative callers or something of that nature and wanted to put them in the cranes. You know, absolute shit. But anyway, we won the blue and it become a figure in the crane hire award. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> things, things are a lot different uh, in those days than they are now. Uh, sunglasses. Jeez, that was a real blue. And that involved the tower cranes as well in later... In later times, I mean, Ralph might remember the sunglass blue where we had to involve, uh, is it Dixon or somebody with the DLI? I've forgotten who it was. Yeah. Chief Inspector at the time. Yep. And we had, I'm just trying to remember. We had to do a big, uh, like a work value sort of and safety thing of why you needed sunglasses in a crane with the sun fucking shining in your eyes. <laughs> and you're in the tower cranes, we're operating, you know, hundreds of feet in yeah. the air and... You are basically in control of Christ knows what that's coming up out of the street yeah. and you cannot see a bloody thing. Well, that was a real big blue and we yeah. had to involve, you know, uh, work so, you know, or DLI. But we won it and uh, it, was, it was actually a good, I remember a branch meeting where we went back to report and, uh, and it was good to tell the guys they all had to be fitted with these <laughs> sunglasses. And I can't remember the name of the company they had to go to now, but they had to go and have their glasses fitted. So you can imagine the crane, the crane companies were spewing. <laughs> yeah, because everyone who had glasses had to have the sunglasses prescription. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. But look, there's a lot happened in those days, but I've got to say, even though we used to get into some terrible blues, into union blues, uh, you always looked after each other's back as well. Yeah. If an organiser got into strife on a site, even if you was blueing with that, that organised were official over a DMARC thing, if it come to safety and if it came to looking after each other, you fucking looked after each other. 
And I, I don't know whether that happens now, but by God, it did in those days. You, you looked after. Well, the BIG, the Building Industry Group, had been basically in operation for, yeah. at that stage, probably 20 years, yeah. and right up to the derecognition of the BLF, not just the deregistration, yeah. but the actual derecognition. People were still going out together. Yeah. Uh, Despite all the blues, despite all the arguments uh, that would go on around uh, DMARC, people were still going out, working together to make the industry what it should be, a decent place to work, which is safe, and you go home at the end of the day. Look, I'd I'd often go be on a job, you know, we'd be blueing over cranes with the BLF, for example, but you'd go out on a job with a BLF organiser and go negotiate a site allowance, Uh, or general safety conditions. Uh, Day after day you'll be doing this and you're front up in the commission, uh, which happened almost every second day. Uh, uh, You know, Merriman, Vosti, Commissioner Vosti, Merriman, Commissioner Brown, they all got to know your faces. Just for a 20 or 30 cent an hour uh, allowance, you had to front up and show the reason why. And the employers would have their spokespeople there, the MBA, uh, the MBIA, yeah, the VEF. They'd be there arguing against it. It It's like you know, like a mini court session there, where you had to stand up and address the commission, just commission, just for you know twenty cent or thirty cent allowance. You know, it's uh, or you had to. I remember going with, uh, well, being stuck in a light plane actually uh, with um, oh the Irish guy who done Shepparton. Martin Greeny. Martin Greeny. <laughs> Man, him in a light plane flying up into the uh, the wheat area uh, with the silos. And we'd done about four silos in one day uh, with Commissioner Merriman uh, uh, for inspections just to get a 50 cent an hour site allowance. And the sites were shocking. You know, they full of, full of mud and shit and everything. Uh, So so as a union official, you didn't uh, go to the office and get a lawyer to go to the commission? No, you had to do it. it You had to do it yourself. Uh, Right away, look, right away through, even to when we'd done the award things, it was organisers and quite often a federal official uh, would be leading the way and then you were called as a a witness or, you know, and so on for the different areas, but all the time. Uh, You know, and uh, asbestos in those days, well, Now, again, that was a big problem. So we're now starting to get into the area of health and safety because after you finished uh, with the FEDFA, you came across to what was then the uh, building industry branch of the CFMEU, Building Unions, and you came across with health and safety. So how did you make that transition in your own head into a concentration on health and safety? Was it just like getting to be a rigger in the first place? You just turned up and learned it as you went? Or, <laughs> or did you sort of actually make a conscious decision to move across well, into that? Well, I, I, I found a lot of the jobs I'd done as an organiser with the FEDFA were of a safety nature. Uh, and some of the major disputes were of a safety nature. Just as an example, tilt-up panels. Uh, we had quite a long dispute to get a code of practice for tilt-up panels, which really, it was clearly the mobile crane industry which picked up that 
uh, I was actually instrumental in that uh, kicking off that dispute because of a couple of accidents. A guy lost his arm through a panel not being manufactured properly uh, and the lifting lugs pulling out. Another one, the panel landed on the cab when it's being lifted up. Uh, they were badly manufactured, not being allowed to cure, and no proper safety process, coordinated process for them. At least once a week there'll be a near miss, uh, an injury, there was a couple of fatalities, and we had a mass meeting and the guys jacked up. Crane hire were being very difficult to deal with. Um, we tried the DLI at the time. I think it was Durham who was actually in the chair at the time, if I remember rightly. I'm trying to remember. And he wouldn't entertain a code of practice. So we blew on it and it became the very, very first code of practice in Victoria uh, issued by the DLI or WorkSafe. It was the very first code of practice. So as a code of practice, Pat, did you get to have some input into that? Yes. It, the, the code was actually ours and not WorkSafe. We negotiated uh, with the crane hire and one of the uh, inspectors, it was uh, Inspector Les Loby. You might remember Les. Uh, he was a decent sort of bloke and he put his own time in the evening. He, I sat in the union office a couple of hours at night a week with him while we drafted uh, and put it together. That first code of practice was a FEDFA union document adopted as a code of practice. Uh, another one we had was General Crane Safety. And I remember having a big blue with uh, one of the ministers at the time, Bunner Welsh. Bunner Walsh, yeah. An ex-Wharfie. Yeah, Knew I, nothing about construction. I, I ended up kicking his door in, actually. I don't know how I got away with it. Uh, because we... Uh, actually, it was a fatality in, in a casting yard. Yes. Which caused it, and it, a, a guy lost his head. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was bad maintenance on the crane in the main. It wasn't the actual panel. It was the crane. Uh, you probably might remember that one. It was a very nasty one. And so I go steaming down there. I was egged on a bit, obviously. Um, I had a chat with Camo. <laughs> uh, uh, and Camo was sort of on the sidelines with <laughs> Give me a few tips. Uh, you've got to make a noise if you want anything. And um, from there we got negotiations for what was called the green sticker. Uh, annual inspections of cranes. It was a hell of a blue, uh, and to get that, we actually printed our own inspection sheet, went round and stopped the, the job, and done the inspection, demanded an independent uh, engineer or, or expert to inspect, and we wouldn't let the job start until the cranes were done. So it ended up uh, with an agreement in the end, a green sticker agreement, which got rubber stamped by... Uh, WorkSafe or the DLI as it was. Uh, again, that was one where Les Loby helped on the side as well. He, he was a decent sort of person, I think. He, he, his heart was actually in safety. Well, a lot of those blokes came out of the industry yeah, and it, yeah, it made a very yeah. big difference. Uh, and that's how the green sticker come about. And, I, and the green uh, was, was actually sitting having a glass of vodka. And wonder, and designed a sticker. What colour shall we, we make it? We said, well, greens go, you know. 
So let's make it green. And that's how it comes about. And I've still got at home, and I was sorting stuff out the other day, the very first green sticker what we designed. Uh, and that was, it was safety. It was, that was a thing. And I was always in the back of my mind what happened with the Westgate. And uh, it was always in the back of my mind, don't take notice uh, of an engineer unless you get a second opinion. Because quite often... The engineer is uh, thinking about who pays his money and who's it, where his pay packet's coming from. So you go somewhere else as well. And they've got a different pay packet. And um, that kicked me off. So when, after a, uh, a short lapse from the FEDFA, where I went to work in a minister's office with, with government, and it was actually the Department of Housing, uh, and packed the shits after four weeks and turned to poke it up their ass. Uh, uh, I just couldn't hack it, especially when I was sent out on all the dirty jobs, you know. He'll go and do it, you know, up to Shepherd and up to here and up to there where something's going wrong on a ministry job. Um, I got the, uh, yeah, and a little bit of a lapse, uh, wondering where the next squid was coming from. And <laughs> I uh, got the opportunity to uh, start with uh, the old BWIU. And uh, at the time, Martin Kingham and Frank O'Grady were doing safety on a government grant and I was given the opportunity to slot in there while they'd done something else. And uh, fortunately, uh, there was quite a good filing system which had been put together by Noni Holmes from the Painters' Union, which she gave me access to. So I was able to gather a lot of information I had a lot of reading at night time, believe you me, yes. Can you remember what year that was? Oh, jeez. 86, 87, 88. And, uh, because at that stage uh, the CFMEU was forming and there was yeah. also in that period the referendum on whether the FEDFA would join That's right. the CFMEU. That's right. And uh, at that point in time it was fairly uh, fluid. It was. <laughs> it, uh, look... It was quite adventurous going on the site in those days. (laughs) But uh, I must say, when it came to safety, uh, it didn't matter how how it was uh, between unions, safety was always very, very cooperative. It really was. I I can think of many, many jobs where you're throwing shit at each other, but, oh, no, you're fair dinkum on the safety, so... Mm. Uh, I can't knock it there. I really can't. It was really so, good. At what point did you actually become a the full time uh, occupational health and safety unit? Because um, you were basically there almost by yourself, weren't you? So I was. Yes. Uh, Martin had become secretary. Yes, he had. Of, yeah. Uh, which would be ninety three, I think. Oh, yeah. Ninety two. Somewhere, somewhere yeah. around about. Yeah. In the early nineties. Yeah. yeah. There was some government uh, money, some grant money for putting safety together and uh, you had to put a submission in of what you was going to do and there's clear-cut guidelines what you had to do and you had to report uh, on a quarterly basis what you'd done, what what you spent, how you spent it and so on. And uh, they always had to have some outcome what the government could use. So I kicked off on that on a grant system and you never knew when the next grant was coming because it, they could pack the shits and say, no, you're off, which they did at one stage. But or, alternatively, uh, 
elect a Kennet government, and then well, that did happen. <laughs> well, that did happen during the uh, Kennet era. But fortunately, we had Inkalink operating at the time, and I sat down with uh, Anne Duggan, actually, who had just started in putting together training. I, I sat down um, over a bottle of wine, and she uh, helped to put a submission to Inkalink. Uh, I'd spoken to Glasson, actually, and he said, put it on paper. So we did, and it went to the board, and we managed to get a grant. And it was a 12-month grant with quite clear guidelines. Uh, it was very strict what we were allowed to do and what we couldn't be involved in any industrial, and it had to be certain things. So if you was involved in industrial, you had to be clever how you done it. <laughs> um, Some things never change. <laughs> but uh, uh, also, uh, at that time, there was a national person for safety within the uh, organisation. Uh, I'm trying to think of her name. It was a woman. She were, and she was excellent. She was very good. Who put together um, a whole heap of guidelines which you could use on, uh, and done a lot of research. So I was able to adopt a lot of that stuff, and a lot of stuff I was getting from WorkSafe and reading and sort of start putting it together, the, the, the unit together, and we negotiated with a company called uh, AdChem for a database, Bernie Bianco, and done a deal with him. Actually, the deal was that uh, we looked after him with a, a drink every now and then, and he would let us have his database. So we got a database for, the, for nothing, effectively. And Bernie went on to, uh, from AdChem to ChemWatch. got bigger and bigger. I think partly through our involvement, he grew because we were demanding data sheets and oh, where do we get these from? So they all run into ChemWatch and ChemWatch is supplying the database for us. So uh, it had its benefits and uh, I don't know if it's still going now, ChemWatch, but I found that such a fantastic tool because I could go down to site, take a sample and and take the label or something or whatever, take it up to ChemWatch and they do a data sheet for us. And then you go back to the site and say, hey, hang on a minute, this is wrong. Uh, plus, I had the access to Noni Holmes' uh, database of all the work she'd done because she ended up uh, Dr. Noni Holmes, mm. and she's long since passed, but her information was excellent. And then I had to do a little bit of night schooling to learn uh, some environmental shit, which uh, I joined this group of environmental, um, not hygienist scientists which was uh, a couple of times a month you had these night sessions and it was amazing what you picked up there. You know, you fuck, I didn't know that. So you was able to get out and be that little one-up on, on the bus itself, you know. And, so, and, and it developed, it developed very good. And from there we, we um, started putting together training modules with the training unit at the time. I went to a lecture actually with other organisers and... Um, we was given different things of uh, what would you like to do in the next year. And in my mind, I wanted to do a safety book because when you go on site, the people were saying, what, what's this, what's this? And it was, how can we make it easier? So I spent a bit of time and putting together a, what for a little while was an annual safety book, Is It Safe? And we had a, a bit of debate what to call it. <laughs> Again, that was over a, a, a bottle of vodka. But is it safe? Nobody had thought of that. So, and, and on the site, that's what we were saying. Is it safe? So that's what we called it. 
and the first three or four volumes or two or three volumes were shit. They were really shit. <laughs> it's just you, you hadn't hadn't got into you know how to do it. But as it developed, it became quite a good thing. And actually, the state library started wanting copies, and you know the, we ended up sending copies to the, the British unions, to, uh, to Japan, to, and all over the place. And I remember we, we was getting orders to to send them to different people. It actually didn't turn out too bad a copy. And the one thing that made me smile was when I. A couple of times when I went into a boss's office and we were arguing over safety and to see in their bookcases, it's safe. So I thought, well, fuck, they're learning. <laughs> but I've got to don't, say... Don't teach them too much. <laughs> I, I've got to say, uh, with those later volumes, I've got to give credit to uh, my offsider, uh, Lisa Cruikshank, because whereas I'd, I'd put together the stuff roughly at the home or sitting on the shit house or wherever... You know, I'd get to give me ideas and then I'd get Lisa, Lisa to, to sit down with us and say, no, that's fucking wrong, that's wrong. And she spent many an evening when she no need to stay in the office doing that. She was an absolute brick. She's a rip. That woman deserved a medal. She was the best acquisition to the safety unit I can ever think of and I, I've got to say that. And it was a great loss when we lost uh, uh, Lisa and... I'd get to the rough copy together, uh, and then I'd go to Loretta in the training unit to proofread it. And then, of course, she'd knock the shit out of it as well. You know, <laughs> oh, that don't go there. <laughs> but we we ended up with a system you know, yeah. where we could do it. And uh, I've got to say, the last couple of volumes I was quite proud of. Um, I had to do a lot of work on the scaffolding section, actually, because that had become a nightmare. <laughs> Because things were changing all the That's time, right. and you thought you had it right, and now it wasn't, and it wasn't. And you know, uh, I've forgotten who the scaffold guy at WorkSafe. I mean, uh, I mean, he picked the eyes out of it at one stage. I just can't think of his Glenn. No, no, before Glenn. Uh, Ian Bolton. No, he's. Uh, a, I think he's a uh, priest or a padre now. Oh, he is indeed. Uh, I can't think of his Phil. Phil. Phil Court. Phil. Phil Court. Yeah. Who will be, for those listening, coming yeah, on yeah. to uh, Creatures of the Industry yeah. in due course. Yeah, he he had that sort of brain where he picked the little niggly, you know, he really picked it together. And he put, he put together some bloody good scaffold documents yes. and gave us the okay to use them in Is It Safe? And, I, you know, I've got to say, you know, thank you to that, that, that particular person because he helped. He helped yeah. really no end. I've got to say there was a lot of people in the industry in those days who used to used to help. Yep. They did think safety. I don't know what it's like now. I've been out in the industry t- for too long. But, but you know, that's how the safety unit came about. Uh, when the Kennett government got in and there was a, the minister then was Prescott, uh, he was pretty quick. He was very, very quick in... Uh, Cancelling our um, our grant and asking to return it. Yep. Uh, we had to return any money not used. Yeah. But by then we'd managed to get other funding ways, you know. So we yeah, well the Coca Cola machines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean that was a straight up deal where they <coughs> got Coca Cola machines on site now. Not everyone's yeah. favourite product, Coca Cola, but they paid a uh, honorarium. Let's say. And that went to the Occupational yeah. Health and Safety Union. Yeah, well, we, we, we actually bought a microscope and some, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, no, the noise 
metres yeah. from the Coca-Cola machine, uh, which was good because I'd gone to those night classes to learn how to use the microscope. And it was great when somebody brought a yeah. sample in and you could go and tell them what it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just those couple of hours sitting down with the experts at night time who were showing me, you know. And it's, uh, there's a, a, a lot we was able to do. And a lot of documents we've done, you know. Uh, well, there's a lot of alerts and there are a lot oh, of... Oh, jeez. Look, I'd get an idea and I'd go to Lisa yep. and Lisa was very, very creative. And we'd sit down there like silica dust, went through the problems with silica dust and she knocked it together for us. You know, I was sort of verbal and she was on the computer doing it. Uh, wood dust, uh, heat... All the different alerts. We was able to sit down for an hour or two in the evening and knock them out. And we, what we had in mind was to put an alert out every fortnight, and we was able to do it. We was able to do it. You know, somewhere at home I've got the rough copies of what we'd done, and there was dozens and dozens. And it was great to see them in the smoko sheds because the bosses hated them. Yeah. And if you put something up, they'll come and tear it off, and the guys will put it up again. And, and they're still doing that today. Uh, when we organised the safety committees, now that was a quite a story as well. Yep. Uh, with the asbestos industry, we had the asbestos industry agreement negotiated on an annual basis. One of the things in the asbestos industry agreement was 20 minutes a week, if I remember rightly, uh, safety meeting. Now, the guys didn't have their 20 minutes a week safety meeting, they accumulated it. So they, they accumulated so they could have, you know, two or three hours safety meeting a, a month. And that's what we did. So first of all, it kicked off with the safety reps meetings with those asbestos safety reps or, or shop stewards because quite often the shop stewards was the safety, uh, you know, the safety, uh, the way the industry was. And from there, we kicked off uh, the safety reps meetings monthly uh, with the idea that it was a training segment. And we built that into our grant system with Inkling. So you got the safety reps there and you had to have a little bit there with training or you gave a few alerts out and the um, the guys liked it, you know. And it's gone from strength uh, to strength because even today, Pat, like, you know, with the amount of reps we've got, we would get, um, you know, COVID stuffed a lot of it up, as we all know, but... We would get regularly 130, 100, yeah. Yeah, even sometimes more reps come every month. And um, and one of the big things that they really do enjoy about the health and safety reps meetings, which I remember going to yours, like when I first started in the industry, is that you got some alerts. You yeah. got information. It wasn't just about, say, maybe what's going on in the industry. It was about the health and safety. Yeah. And, and if you've got a problem with silica dust, there was an alert. And the information was there for you to be able to take back to your site. And, and I, you'll remember, because I've, I know even now, you know, on a Friday, the guys would uh, come into the safety reps meeting and they'd get a full head of steam because they'd have all this information <laughs> and, and go and fucking play havoc on the job. Oh, on, the, on, <laughs> on, on the Monday, it used to yep. be murder. The safety yep. unit's phone would be going nonstop and you'd be running your ass off trying yep. to get the Try, Trying to get back up to, yeah, yeah. So in terms of the health and safety unit, what do you think were the major campaigns? I mean, you've, you've covered a fair old range of issues. There was many. But what were you th- 
you think were the outstanding campaigns that not only should be run but had to be run? Well, precast was one. Uh, and was pushing for a code but ended up getting forced into a precast standard, yeah. which then ended up a national standard. But it kicked off in – it was Victoria which done that. Yep. And then nationally they decided, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. Same as with the uh, tilt panel, similar to the t- tilt panel. Uh, we run those noise campaigns. Again, the actual campaign kicked off here when we was pushing for people to have the, the hearing tests, if you remember. The uh, asbestos was a major campaign, and I think still is, because everywhere we went there was an asbestos problem. The environmental safety, this is contaminated sites, uh, and I know that still is a big issue, but I think that was, in those days, a major campaign when we got quite a lot of benefit and I think it should still carry on because there's not a demolition site that kicks off where underneath the ground, once they've got the building down, there's not some sort of contamination, whether it's asbestos or fluorocarbons or whatever. You know, it's there. And look at the tunnel. Look what's happening there. 100%, Pat. We can Uh, see it um, today just as much as you would have seen it in your day is that um, every demolition site... Um, and maybe there's processes in place that are probably better now as far as the testing and, and all that that gets done beforehand, but we all know that even today, um, you know, it's still got to be followed, and, and, and often it's not. And so that's where the exposures happen to not only asbestos but to all the nasty chemicals that you're talking about in the ground and so forth. Um, you know, like you sort of you look back... 30 years ago and the stuff that you guys fought for, we're still struggling with today. It's still very relevant what happened way back then. Well, look at, look at silica dust. We had a campaign on silica dust. It kicked off for the off-site area in the stonemasons' yards. That's where we really kicked it off. Uh, and on-site where they were using the, uh, the Besser block type stuff where they were cutting it on-site and so on. And then we started learning that they're not the only problems with silica dust, but generally we've got a problem with silica dust on any concrete structure. And, you know, we run the campaign, and if you remember down at um, Docklands, we were getting lung function tests done. I'm just trying to think of the shop steward's name at the time. He really had it, a bee in his bonnet about it. God, I can't think of his name. Down Docklands. Donnelly, Donnelly. Oh, uh, Mick Donnelly. Mick, Don- Mick Donnelly. Mick. Mick. Oh, Sorry. Uh, and it, it was shown it was just a bigger problem, generally on construction. So we kicked that off. Sydney kicked it off in the tunnels because they were going through uh, tunnelling areas when they were doing those tunnels up there where there was a lot of silica, high silica content. Um, and it's still there. That silica problem is still there. You know, so now Noel, uh, one of the guys, one of the uh, hygienists from Noel, I think it's Noel Arnold's, sat down and done this paper on it, and this is back in the mid-90s. He'd done a a really good paper, and we used that because we went through all the research he'd done and we used that. I remember Lisa going through that and, and, you know, one of those talks I'd done at those silly bloody conference things they used to have was on it, you know. I used his paper to to do it. But uh, it's still a problem there. 
Well, the last couple of years has really shown how bad it is with uh, a lot of young guys, and, and it's mainly guys that are working with the stone top benches. That a silicosis is probably getting to the point where it's every bit as bad as a asbestos it is. diseases now. Um, so, you know, how far have we come? There's still uh, it's probably worse now than probably what it was back then. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, and yeah. You know, once you go to look, like I've I've got pleural plaque from asbestos, but I've also got a problem with my lungs from being on the jackhammer for many years. You know, because I spent a year or two on the jackhammer with, in the in the real shitty stuff, and so once you got it, you can't get rid of it. You know, it's there. Right. That's correct. And yeah. I have days when I can't fucking breathe. Yeah, I can't. Now, asbestos has come up a couple of times. Where do you think the industry's at with asbestos today? I mean, you've been out of it a little bit, but I'm sure you still have contacts, you still have feedback. Where do you think we are with asbestos today? I think that we're going back a little bit. I think that a lot of them out there now... Um, look, I talked to some of the guys who's still in the industry. You know, Every now and then I might have a coffee with you know, one of them. And they tell us there's all these... Um, shonky type removalist which WorkSafe are allowing in to get you know their their licenses permits and so on some of them are untrained or you might have one or two have done the course and they might have done the union course and uh, the others have done nothing or they've done a shonky course somewhere and they're out there removing asbestos where other building workers have got to come where where a job hasn't been done properly you know, and I can think, I know buildings in the city, which in the old days was done shonky. Building contractors got the job for refurbishment and it had to be done again. I can think of quite a few jobs like that. Yep, absolutely. And uh, state government jobs, you know, hospitals and schools, where a shonky audit had been done, a shonky removal had been done, and it's there. So it's there to watch for because, you know, you, you inherit the sins of the past. So... We inherited bad jobs. We tried to put it right to the best of our ability, but now it's gone where WorkSafe have let us down or the system's let us down. And there's too many people there wanting to make a quick read, say we're asbestos removalists, uh, where the, even the boss who runs a company hasn't got a licence. Yet if you look at the way the legislation was, the boss had to have the licence. Not just the company, but whoever was in sitting behind the desk and saying, do this and do this. They had to. And I'm pretty sure we, if I remember rightly, we got a legal opinion at what time off of, I think it was Slayton Gordons or somebody, to determine that. You know, go through the act and say, yeah, this is the way the yep. act is. And they still do, Pat, but the problem that we're getting is, and it's exactly what uh, people that are talking to you about, is that, you know, probably back in the old days there would have been half a dozen probably A-class removalists maybe in Melbourne doing the works and they all were doing within reason. They were all doing a good job. But now we have. We've got shonks everywhere. Mm. Um, they've been given licences where through WorkSafe where they should never have got it. Uh, the process to get a licence uh, isn't that onerous anymore and, um, and consequently builders then go, like every other subcontractor, they go for the cheapest price. So the good ones that are still out there, and there's, there's still half a dozen, eight good ones out there Some of them, have, uh, some of them haven't got DCOMs. Yeah. Uh, they haven't got proper respirators. You know, 
and Tyvex, they do them in their own clothes. I've seen in Werribee. I watched one once and I dodged them into WorkSafe and then sat opposite waiting for WorkSafe to come up, having a cup of coffee, waiting for them to come up. They come, they come when the job finished. So, you know, it's, uh, the, the problem with our regulator uh, compared to the old days is that they're employing people that don't have uh, expertise in Industry certain, exper- expertise. Yeah, in, in certain uh, aspects now. Um, so th- they'll look at it and they'll listen to what the boss on the, the job is saying and I'll accept that. Look, I, yeah, I agree. You, you can have all the university training in the world, but that doesn't give you, you know, the the work experience of, you know, on-the-job experience. You can't yeah. be on-the-job experience. No, that's correct. So with the asbestos issue, where do you think the industry was at the point where you retired? Uh, was it satisfactory or... No, it still needed improvement. Yeah. Look, it's a sort of industry where you need to improve, improve. You was kept busy because you had a system where I think there's about a dozen Class A. Then you had Class B. I, I don't know if you've got a Class C, but it looks like it. You know the way it is now. But those Class A's would be the very first to ring up and say, "Look, so and so's doing a job. I quoted for that. I don't know how they're doing it so cheap." Uh, I went past there. So they give you the, the word and you go down there. But now it's become so hard, from what I can see, for an organiser to go down because uh, this, the way the, the, the system is now is everything to, in the way of preventing a safety uh, officer or an organiser to get on site to say this is wrong. Everything's put in their way. You, you can see it. You know, you, you you don't have to be working in the industry to, to see it. You can sit back and see it. You know. yeah. um, and one thing has built to another and it's made it worse all the way round. And you're totally correct there. Is, is it uh, if you actually manage to find an asbestos job getting done because, as you said, once upon a time a builder would come on site and the builder would set up and then they'd get the asbestos removalist in and mm. so forth. So you had that avenue... And, and the um, the contact there to to understand the job was happening. Uh, nowadays they're doing it direct to a developer, and the developers go, "Well, I know it's a hundred dollar job, but I only want to give you fifty. So they'll cut the corners. They won't tell anyone. And by the time a lot of our guys often get yeah. on to find out, it's too late. Or if they do get on, then they've got bloody coppers net chasing them around trying to get them off. Yeah, um, see, the, the, the system's just yeah. it's not helping. Oh, not at all. I used to give. Um, Con and Ziggy the shits on a Saturday morning. I, we're, we're talking about Delta demolitions. <laughs> I, I used to, I used to go to Ligon Street and uh, sit and have coffee and breakfast on a Saturday morning. And Ziggy always used to drive down there, so I'd wait to watch for him, and I'd follow him, <laughs> and I'd get, get on the side. Where do you come from? And, you know, how do you know about this? I just followed him and he caught on in the end. So what he used to do on a Saturday is he knew where I used to have my coffee, so he'd stop to see if I was there. <laughs> and it was a bit of a game we used to play, so I'd go across the road and have my coffee across the road. But but I, I used to cop them. Mm. You know, I'm just trying to figure the oh, – uh, one of them was a real maverick, one of the demolition mobs. What, what was his name? Jeez. <laughs> been around for years and years and years and I caught him on a job uh, 
on a Saturday morning, <laughs> gets down there. All the doors are locked, but not the back door. Gets in. They're all there knocking the shit out, internal, you know, strip. Asbestos everywhere. Nobody wearing a mask of any. And I guess, how the fuck did you know? Didn't like to let him know that Ziggy had dubbed had him in. <laughs> but uh, what about uh, hygienists? They, as an industry or a sector of the industry, developed big time... Uh, from the 80s on. We started them. Yeah. And uh, where do you think that's at now? Because people rely on the bit of paper, the, the email that's sent, whatever. They are ticking off. Where do you think we are with that particular aspect? I, I'm not sure the identity's out there now because I know we a lot. We won't get into identity. Yeah, I know a lot of them have gone. You know, the good yeah. ones have gone. But uh, the hygienists seem to forget that. Their industry, we started it. In the old days, there was David Kilpatrick and yep. Noel Arnolds. Yep. One of them had an office just behind Trades Hall and used to do um, those manual handling things uh, uh, and broke into asbestos and, and dust generally and the other one was really onto asbestos. The two of them were not far away from each other. Yeah, well, Patrick uh, was really into asbestos. He was good. Because he, was, he had, yeah. I think, cut his teeth with the actual asbestos yeah. manufacturing yeah. companies yeah. out in the western yeah. suburbs. And actually, uh, Kilpatrick was the one who helped us with the Verrick document mm. when we put the Verrick document. Yeah. David was excellent and Noel had sent somebody down as well, but David was really excellent and there was a couple of others as well. But uh, we did have some shonky um, hygienists around. And what we used to do is do our best to steer people away from them and someone we, we could trust. But they didn't have any, in those days, didn't have any proper qualifications and then that, the qualifications were brought in and they, there was some degree thing started up in Geelong. I can't remember it now. Because a couple of people came down to the union office to question Martin Kingham and myself of you know, what we was looking at. And there was something put together for it. And I remember one of them coming down doing a thesis on what was required. You know, it's, it's cre- creatures of an industry we created, the union, cre- the union movement created. And now they seem to be more, from what I can see, more university, you know, sort of attuned and not this is the way it really is on in the industry. And you're correct, Pat. What we're seeing now, uh, there's, there's a couple of things. One... Uh, most of the, the, the kids coming into the industry, and I'll call them kids because they are straight out of university, are highly educated kids, but they actually don't know a lot of what they're looking at. Um, and some of the better companies around that we do have do try and pair them up with one of the uh, older people in the industry to um, teach them you know, what to look mm. for. But, again, a lot of them get, end up sending out, because it's all about money, they get sent out. They actually don't know. There's, you know. As you know, because you've, you've seen it, the asbestos um, uh, fibre is in, you know, what, 3,000 different probably objects and, and, and stuff around. Um, there's some crazy stuff out there that asbestos is in. They don't know that. They've never seen it. They don't have that industry experience or, or been brought up through it. So consequently, I think our guys still getting exposed today because of that. Uh, and the other side of it too is that the hygienists have become a subcontractor just like any other subcontractor and, and if you don't want to do the, the, the job for 50 bucks, they'll just go and get uh, Billy round the corner who'll do it for 
$30. And, of course, you're not getting the proper job. So, you know, the industry suffers again because of that fact of, uh, one, they're treated as a subcontractor and, two, they don't have a lot of industry yeah, well, uh, knowledge. Well, see, uh, what I've seen before I retired was some of the companies were out recruiting pump jockeys, I guess you could say, yep. not hygienists as such, but somebody, because of the way the legislation was watered down a bit, allowed them to employ people to go and do the, the pumps. And yet you've got to watch them. I can recall, and uh, this is true, I remember a, a company doing a job at GMH. It was uh, over a Christmas period when it was uh, shut down and uh, as a removal and monitoring. And I think it went for about two weeks or three weeks. And uh, I was given the tip, actually. So I, I went down there. Uh, I'm just trying to think who's doing the job. Kang's mob. ATS. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of their blokes rang through. And he told us, so I goes down there and <laughs> goes through the pump results and the pumps. And I think there was about a dozen pumps scattered all over the place. And this guy had given me the tip. He said, if you go over there and go over there, you'll find a couple of pumps and uh, they're not working. I said, why? He says, because the batteries run out three days ago. They hadn't been removed, you know, hadn't been sampled, removed. Yet on the pump documents, it showed results. So how did they get the results for a couple of pumps, which the batteries had gone flat, nobody had gone to take the samples out, change the pumps or anything. Whoever had been going backwards and forwards to do the pumps on a daily basis had forgotten those pumps, didn't even know they were there, yet on the results where they get the sheet, the broad sheet, and they've got pump one, pump two, pump three, southeast or whatever, they were there. So it just shows you you get those shonky ones you've got to watch. Yep. And I know I remember one company who we had to keep an eye on, again, a tip-off, one of the guys letting us know that the hygienist used to give the pumps to the removalists, wouldn't go down. The removalists would put the pumps there so if anybody checked, they'd look good. But the results always showed negative, you know. So you think about it. If you didn't catch them and if officials weren't allowed to get in, how the fuck are you going to catch them? Yep. Yep. Are you going to keep them honest? Yep. So, yeah, look, I might be a grumpy old man, but that's why I'll see. Correct. There is any number of issues with asbestos over the years. Where do you reckon the worst case of contamination was, in your experience, in terms of just the amount of asbestos, the the failure to control? Was there any big jobs that could only be described as a disaster? I can think of several. Well, it would be interesting for people to to reflect on. Uh, The university up at Bandura? Yeah, the Trobe. Uh, there was a, a refurbishment taking place. There'd been a removal refurbishment and uh, one of the members actually took a sample of some material which he was told was uh, diatomaceous earth and there's the stuff all flying everywhere, you know, ripping it off and flying everywhere. Uh, we went and got it independent. It sampled. It was blue, mm. blue asbestos. I mean, that's just one, you know. I can remember a demolition contractor in, um, in Geelong found a bit of waste ground, had done dozens and dozens of uh, demolition jobs, 
pile the whole lot in one great big pile. A cheerio and a lorry. <laughs> this great big pile. And I'd retired at the time. It was the first year retired. I remember the Geelong Trades Hall Council gave us a ring, said, come up and have a look, what do you reckon? Because that's when uh, I got the opportunity then to go to WorkSafe and, uh, and the minister, uh, along with our asbestos diseases, mate, from the valley, <laughs> and, and thump the table without getting sacked <laughs> because it was atrocious. Um, they're all over the place. They are. Well, I remember you running down Victoria Hotel in uh, oh. Little Collins Street. <laughs> Was that a disaster? Yes, yes. And yet these places are still uh, being utilised, redeveloped, refurbished, and uh, very few of them would be uh, clean sites to start They're with. They're not. Uh, look, a lot of it's hidden because when, in the early days when the uni movement kicked off Remove Asbestos, weren't as well clued up as we are now. Uh, the removalists, a lot of them, I remember <laughs> a lot of them started, they were actually putting the stuff in. They, they were insulation contractors, mm. you know, Bell, Fermilag and all them, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so they reversed and become removalists. But uh, they, you know, they, they, they didn't do it the way the code says and the way we, you know, it should be done. It was in there, make it look good. Hide it if possible. Uh, uh, just thinking of one, it was the um, catering school. William Anglis. That's it. Oh, yeah. That's it. <laughs> when I was called down there, underneath in the subfloor, there had been two big removal jobs done there. And, you know, they'd got the clearances and all that sort of thing. And there's the guys in there doing refurb and, you know, minor internal demolition and refurb into that subfloor. And what had happened is one of the shonky removalists had removed and put it in the subfloor. It was everywhere, everywhere. Yep. And, and William Anglis didn't have the money for removal at the time. There was quite a big blue. Uh, but uh, it just so happened one of the uh, removalists called in to do the clean-up was one of them who put the stuff into the building anyway. I knew where it was, <laughs> which was very handy, very handy. What about the power stations? I mean, oh, yeah. oh. the the power stations were basically SECV, yeah. government in, institution as it then was. I mean, Kennett sold it off, but uh, how do you reckon the state government has done its business over the years? doesn't matter who the Premier is or what party's in power, but in terms of government, how do you reckon that's compared on the asbestos and environmental uh, issue generally? Well, I think sometimes some governments uh, say the right words and start off with good intentions but realise, see the cost and see the time and look for the easy way out. Uh, and I think that happened down in the Trove Valley a few times. Yes. They tried to pull it off when we'd done the um, Spencer Street power station mm. but we was on to them there, so that was good. And there was a couple of real good... Inspectors at the time, unfortunately one of them's recently passed or passed away. He was there every second day. He used to keep an eye on it and even got himself issued with uh, the full asbestos uh, power operated <laughs> uh, respirator, the whole works, and they'd walk in there like a zombie. <laughs> uh, and Guilfoyles was doing it at the yes, time. And yes. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, he kept them on their toes. So that 
went reasonably well. Um, but uh, in another life, between different jobs, I had a job with a mob called Fermanite. I got four weeks' work uh, down in the power industry. You know what the job was? Stopping steam leaks in the valves in the power industry. So you went through it. You know what it stopped with? Graphite and asbestos. Uh, so, you know, down, down there, a lot of those valves, which a lot of people, when they're doing demolition, might to think, oh, shit, yeah, a bit of scrap there, pumped into that valve to prevent a leak. What we used to do, you had a, like a hot drill, uh, air-operated hot drill. You drilled into the valve with like a special attachment and then pumped asbestos and graphite into it you know, with, with the old black oil grease. And that sealed the leak. Not many people realised that, but I was looking for them when we'd done the power yeah. station because yeah. it's in them. Yep, even today. Um, i tell you where they used to get the asbestos, down in Hardware Street. Yeah. There was a little Jewish uh, uh, importer there who used to import the asbestos because I dobbed them in when I... <laughs> but, but even today, some of the, the, the big valves down in the power station at Latrobe Valley because I'll get down there um, with Toby, they've got gaskets. That they'll, they'll pull yeah. them apart and there's gaskets because... That was always a problem. The asbestos gaskets, they, they would have ordered you know, a couple of hundred you know, 35 years ago and somewhere in a storeroom they've, they've still had 20 or 30 of them and no-one's realised they're asbestos gaskets anymore but they're the right gasket to fit that job. So they're still yeah. putting bloody asbestos gaskets in... You know, it's, it's, recent time. That was always a problem, the, yeah. the, the asbestos gaskets, and a lot of the fitters don't realise yeah. the, the asbestos. Yeah. I'll tell you one of the campaign, I'm just thinking back a bit, which I reckon was a beauty, and it was asbestos, and uh, it was Alcoa down in uh, Portland. Yes. You might remember it. I was sent down there with Fedfer, or oh, what's his name, Paddy... Um, I'm trying to remember, the shop steward, well-known around the... Crane industry, actually, days gone by. He uh, had a bit of a beef with this crane company. Uh, it was a um, an old um, Coles machine, and it had asbestos brake linings, and, uh, you know, you got the winch wheels alongside you in the cab, and he was telling us all about it, and, that, and it jogged my memory to when I was working on the Westgate with one of the old operators, Jack McKinney, who... Uh, drove the old uh, 1200 Lima and he put me onto how those uh, the winch brakes uh, were asbestos and it wasn't unusual as well in those days so you got better friction to throw a bit of talc in there and uh, he put me on so so we kicked off a campaign down there for asbestos free cranes there were 60 odd cranes down there lined up at the gate trying to get in <laughs> I got into terrible shit over it. They <laughs> couldn't get the asbestos-free material. They shipped it in from Germany, America, Japan, all over the world. Uh, as a crane become okay, and Prince Engineering or Prince Crane Hire was there at the time as well. They yeah. they got onto it, and uh, what's the guy's name? Something Garner. He, Steve Garner. Yeah, he done his pretty quickly. <laughs> Because uh, he'd been listening in the pub when we was making our plans. Keppel yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. Prince. <laughs> and, you know, some of those machines had to leave Portland, had to leave the area. They come from all over the country because being such a big job, everybody was grabbing, you know, a crane, and some of them were shocking. They were shocking. So we went through the brakes, 
And I think it made a cleaner industry because it removed that operator sitting in the old pin-up cranes. I mean, the hydraulics weren't bad. Mm. It was only uh, the road brakes that were the problem with uh, hydraulics. But just the same in, for maintenance, the old fitter was being exposed. So we got yep. everything done. But the old pin-ups, you sat there and there's the drums alongside you. And you got yeah, you got a drum shield, but you've still got asbestos there. And a lot of them used to take the drum shield off to throw a bit of talc in. So you could just imagine the problem uh, operators in the past went through before we got onto it. You know? And that kicked off a whole new industry, changing crane brakes for asbestos-free. And the whole crane hire had to pick that up as well. Now, we've been chatting for a while, and maybe now it's time to look at, say a review of what you reckon is the best changes that have taken place in the industry over your journey and perhaps also reflect on change which has not exactly been the success that everyone promised. I think we've touched on a couple of those with asbestos. Yeah. Uh, but where do you think the industry has gotten to today? What is the quality improvements and what have... Well, not necessarily the failures, but not certainly not the great successes that people uh, predicted. And I'll just throw one in there. The precast is still the problem it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, well, precast, I, I think we improved it you know, no end, but uh, I don't know what it's like now. But if we're not sticking to the codes and standards, or if they've watered the standards down, which I no doubt a number of those engineers were trying to do at one stage then it's not as good as what we were making it. Uh, you know, you see that money seems to count in more than what a general worker's safety is. So uh, that's one there. Uh, look, the gains I've seen over the years... Not just health and safety, but just gains in the industry. Yeah, look, first start certification of scaffolders, riggers, crane operators, doggies and so on, because at one stage, like I mentioned... You fronted up in the job and if you could climb the steel or walk the steel or look a bit like a rigger or a crane operator, you was. Mm. Uh, and then it came in that you had to be one. So you had to show that you was. And when it, they first introduced certification, it was a, an inspector, an old DLI inspector, would come to the site and actually test you and put you through your ropes. And I remember going through the ropes, especially on the on a 40-tonne hydraulic. I was put through the ropes on there just to get on that. So that was good things. Um, but I've heard of stories now where to get certificates, if you do the two-week quickie course, there's the chances you'll get a regular or a doggies ticket. Pat, can I tell you that it's even worse than that? Um, and uh, yeah. a, a lot of companies out there, there's, you know, like there's, there's two-day courses. Um, you, know, you can go and do your... Your um, basic rigging, you know, one day and then intermediate two days later, and then you can start looking at your advanced on the Friday. Um, so things that you guys fought for, where the DLI was really strong behind, and where you had your log books and so forth, and and the guy that was looking after you wouldn't let you go for your next ticket until he thought you were competent, not whether you thought you were competent. That's gone by the wayside. So even though we've got obviously really good quality trades and riggers and stuff in our industry, geez, there's a lot out there that have just gone and done that couple of days course and... and well, that's, that's, there's a good example, isn't it? That that's that's D-Reg for We you. start with nothing. Yep. We improved it no end. We actually, you know, 
got a pretty good process in regards to certification and now we've gone backwards again. And sitting back, you can see a few situations like that where we've gone back. But anyway, uh, what do I think uh, I've seen come in? Um, Superannuation. When we first started the campaign for super, being a young buck, I thought, ah, it's a long way away. No, I wasn't that interested. I remember Mick Clark with Fedford giving me a pound in one day of why I should be really supporting it, which I ended up uh, kicking it off and managed to crack the crane hire industry for the very first super in Victoria, and that was the CTRF. And then that got, you know, into Austin, Bass and all that, but uh, that was Mavis... Bramston, I think it was. No, no, Robinson. Robinson, no, oh, Robinson, yeah. <laughs> I was Bramston, it was a TV show in oh, the 60s, remember? Yeah, <laughs> uh, this shows you how your memory goes. Don't tell me she's the same as looks the same. But, but yeah, that, that was a, a, a good campaign. Yeah. Actually, uh, I remember um, one of the jobs when we was fighting for that uh, was in the middle of the old scissor lift campaign. Yep. And I was on a job of Ray Wynn Stanley. Sisk, yep. uh, was it Sisk Construction or something of that nature? Yep. Down Port Melbourne Way, a bridge. SIST, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm pushing for, for the super and he's got the blue on, on the scissor lift and then he's going, that's a good idea. <laughs> you know, what if our boys too? <laughs> you know, so it was a good win, I think, for, uh, you know, portability of uh, long service leave was another one. That was a campaign which uh, the building industry kicked off and uh, that was uh, during the Westgate days that kicked off because we went for uh, metals didn't get that and we went for it there as part of the agreement which you know, just shows you how you sort of can get on another back and away you, you make some wins. Um, training, the union being involved with training I think was very important because you had union people supplying training. You know, people who knew the industry, knew the little lurks and all that, and you could learn a lot from somebody who'd driven the crane themselves, yeah. uh, who's, who's done scaffolding themselves. You learn a lot. You learn all the little tweaks of it, you know. So that was a, a big one. Inkalink. Now, Inkalink, well, that's, that's why I'm there, and that was when uh, we jacked up Lewis Constructions and won Inkalink, Colin Saunders... <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, he's a character. <laughs> but um, look, look, Inkalink now. It's a benefit to construction workers who owe the place, and I think it's the envy of a, a lot of other organisations because even though uh, you know the Royal Commission and the powers will be tried to crucify it, it's it's done a benefit for everybody. Uh, you know, at least I think that's in my well, opinion. It, it certainly has. And when we had our conversation earlier, Pat, you were telling me a bit about uh, when you first did uh, the jack-up of the jobs and, yeah. and got the redundancy payment and then eventually Master Builders got on board and, you know, that, that's where Inkling yeah. was involved through the, the industry. What was the idea behind you getting all the um, the money in, in there and then you're getting um, – it was growing all the time. Yeah, yeah. So so what was the idea behind what, that? What happened – for the very first time, the FEDFA broke a concrete pour. It was during the days of uh, everything happening. On Lewis Constructions, 222 Exhibition Street. Colin Saunders was the organiser for the city at the time and if he got it into his head, he was going for saying he would and I'd cop the ship at a branch meeting. What we what was we going to do for the tower crane cruise? Uh, Ralph will remember, probably remember the meeting. 
uh, I was in uh, acting secretary at the time for Fedfo and because uh, we'd just done some big wins for the crane hire. Uh, they were big wins. It worked out about 60, 70 bucks a week, you know, it's, uh, it's big in those days. And uh, Colin was uh, down on the job. He'd, uh, uh, tower crane specialists were doing yes. the towers, so I think, uh, yeah, Owens, yeah. Yep. Sleepy yeah. Owens. Yeah. yeah. And um, Colin was going for the 20 bucks a week for crane crew. You know, the mm. cranes, doggies, riggers, you know, 20 bucks a week. Um, Lewis's were against it. And no problem with uh, Sleepy. He would have paid it. But he's working for Lewis's. So. Mm. And uh, the idea was to get 20 bucks a week paid at the end of the job. So you got a lump sum. So we jacked that up to win that one, you know, to win Lewis's. But uh, geez, I haven't forgotten the roasting I got. Being sitting in the chair, the MBA had, I reckon within five minutes of Colin jacking the job up, there was an MBA, I think it was Peter Shell or somebody yeah, at the time, Peter Peter Shell. in front of me, screaming. <laughs> he was good at that. <laughs> really going off. And then the next I had, um, who was it from um, Crab's office? Somebody from Crab's office. Oh, Howard. Uh. He, he was the next one there in the office. <laughs> Bob Howard. Uh, and I, I'm sort of trying to put a bit of a grid on, you know, but anyway, we pulled it off. And it was then a matter of crane crew after crane crew cracking it. So we cracked a lot. And this money was building up with the various builders or, you know, tower crane companies. And their worry was if they went broke yep. or if for some reason at the end of the job they didn't pay, what muscle have we got to you know, get it well. back? There was a couple that did go broke. Taylor's yeah. went broke in yeah. Collins Street for a start. So it's a matter of, yeah. you know, how do we ensure the guys, you know, guaranteed for that money and how can we uh, get some sort of tax benefit because, you know, when you paid a lump sum, you're paying this enormous amount of tax. So in the end, uh, there was a deal done with the MBA and the MBA had the office space down there, office down or... That street at the back of Victoria Parade, where the Gertrude Street. Are they still yeah. there? Are they? No, no, long gone. Oh, they, <laughs> they. The fund now owns a building up in Rathdown Street, opposite the exhibition building. <laughs> <laughs> Worth a lot of money. They, so there was an agreement reached with them that there'd be a committee formed. The funds would be invested, so there'd be interest going on the funds, and there was a guarantee that that money was there for. You know, as a redundancy for the guys. But then with the interest building up, and we still weren't able to get any tax benefit. So it's what do we do with the interest? You know, it's quite a big headache. And by then, the building industry generally had come in, you know, because we, at the time we was all blueing, but yep. in the end it all came in, so it became a proper fund. And uh, I think some of the um, employer organisations which were against it and the builders suddenly thought it was a good thing. Because the, the agreement we reached was the interest would go back to the benefit of the building industry and the workers generally. So to use it for training or grants and things of that, you know. For, Insurances. And, and so on. It had to be for the benefit of the industry. Now, I was on initially on one of the committees where, as I say, some of those builders who were against it suddenly thought it was good because they were all putting in submissions for grants training grants where they had some shonky trainer would provide training and they'd get this amount of money. So you had to be there to say, no, no, not that one, or I know that, and so on. But it developed from there, you know, 
we needed a um, somebody when there was a fatality to go and pick up counselling. So it was good. It picked up the counselling, uh, training uh, when we set up the safety unit. We was able to get a grant from Inkalink then. And when Jeff Keller took away a lot of uh, things like workers' compensation uh, benefits and so on, the fund actually picked up through insurance a number of the uh, benefits that had been lost Thanks to Jeff Kennett. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the ambulance cover, what yes, we've got. Yes. I mean, I used that myself at one time when the, uh, I had a bit of an attack and an ambulance had to take me off. And uh, I got the bill from the ambulance uh, ink that I had. Uh, since then, I've gone in the ambulance fund. But the inkling picked it up, which was good. You know, and dental. I know a few people who had real problems, you know, uh, mm. uh, done at work, actually. But inkling helped along there. So it's such a benefit. So it that, started from such small beginnings, but, it's actually turned into a fantastic fund for... I reckon that is one of the big employees. one of the big things which is um, every person in the building industry, or I should say organised building industry, because there's a few out there which uh, don't want to uh, be organised and they don't get the benefits. Or if they do, then they're, they're taking the benefits and false pretenses because... Uh, Others have uh, paid in and fought for it. You know, but. Well, at this point in time, the weekly redundancy payment uh, is 120 bucks a week, I think. Well, there you are, from $20 and up to that. Going up to 140 uh, in October. Well, there. Yeah, it just yeah. shows you, doesn't and it? And you put your insurances and everything on top of that and yeah. the training levy and so forth, and, yeah, it's, it's grown from very small beginnings to a... Well, see, Great, uh, yeah, guns. when you have a look at that, you know, inkling training, they're, they're big benefits. They're huge benefits. And you know, when you look at some of the things which have come out of people having injuries and fatalities on site, which has ended up with training through, you know, union-organised training units. Well, look at uh, spotters and uh, traffic control. That came from injuries and fatalities. And it came from the union organising around the safety aspect, and, you know, and the training and organising, now it's a prop, it is a proper profession. Yep. You know, you've got... Uh, and some people are making a lot of money out of it. Well, you know, that... that we're talking bosses. Well, that's the problem. A lot of those there, they see dollar signs soon as somebody comes up with an idea there that, oh, yeah, you see a few of them there. Yeah, well, should at this point just mention traffic management, the uh, dispute on the Geelong Road job... Uh, many years ago now, early 2000s, and uh, that's where we started getting uh, serious traffic management uh, plans put in place with concrete barriers and all the rest of it. Uh, all those things have taken place since basically uh, 1990. There's a whole lot of stuff taken place. And look, it's a different industry to what it was when we first come in, completely different industry. Uh, there's so many gains, you know, so many gains, but unfortunately some of those gains are beginning to uh, have water added to them, you know, because... Uh, you suggest that standards are being watered down. Yes. <laughs> Trying to be polite, but I like to say they're being fucked. Yeah. <laughs> say it how it is, Pat. Yeah. So just on a personal level, we started off talking about you and how you came into the industry and so on. What do you think are your personal highlights? This is putting you on the spot a bit, I know, but things that every now and then just pop into your head, people that just pop into your head and you just reflect for a minute and go, yeah. Because there's lots of great people that have 
oh, been in and out of the oh, industry over oh, the yeah. years. And there's there's been all sorts of disputes. There's obviously Westgate, you can't get that out of your head. You went through that. But what were some of those things that somebody listening to this interview, 30 years old, never heard of these people, never heard of this stuff, suddenly go, maybe I'll just find out? Well, first of all, you know, people that stick in mind, normally what it sticks in my mind quite often. I remember him saying to me one time, <clears throat> we was talking and I said I was in the Navy, you know, uh, before I come over here and he was telling me about some of his experiences. Uh, and he says, uh, you know, on the job, you know, I was saying it gets a bit daunting, you know, so was, he's, he said, look, just say it as it is and be honest. Mm. And if you don't know something, don't lie to the guys, tell them you don't know and you'll, you'll find out and come back. Mm. And that's always stuck in my mind that that was uh, normal. I think it was the best bit of advice I've got. Um, I heartily agree, a great man. It's just something that's there. If you don't know, don't fib about it. Don't bullshit. Go and find out. Uh, it's not hard to find out and then say, look, you know, go back and say, I found this out, or ring the person up, you know, just let them know. Now, that's you know, something I learned. And I, I remember running into Dave Noonan when he was working at Smorgan's. And I told him the same thing. <laughs> I was repeating what Norby told me. Yeah. <laughs> that's when he elected me self steward. You know, it's it, and that's what I'd, I'd tell anybody. Mm. You don't know. That's one thing. What may be a highlight? I think when I kicked off the safety unit, because I felt like I was doing something a bit of good. You know, just doing a data sheet. I felt like I was doing something. Um, being able to go and see various ministers and say, I don't think this is right, I don't think this is right, you know. The fact that at one time, like when Joan Kerner come to one of our safety meetings, <laughs> when did you get the Premier come to a safety meeting? You know, mm. she actually come and sat there and when we was doing a couple of our little um, so-called training things. Yeah, but it was good. It gave mm. the unit a little bit of a push. But I think being able to do so with the safety unit and... I think hopefully saving a couple of people getting injured or, or fatalities. I mean, you know, it's a few jobs in the past where I've gone in and it's been shocking and I've been able to manoeuvre it that the job was stopped and thought to myself, thank Christ, because if it had carried on, somebody would have been dead. So it's to, I suppose, to think I've done a little bit, made a little bit of a difference, maybe not much, but I've made a little bit. Uh, I think you'll find that you've, you've done a huge difference, Pat, but um, with the safety unit, it's the envy right around the state with the other branches. You know, all the other branches have got a, a safety officer, but Victoria for a long time has had a safety unit. Yeah, well, see, that's when we kicked it off, and uh, especially when Lisa came in, uh, because Lisa was a creature, really a creature of the industry. And I, I went back a long back, way back. I remember going in the BL's office to pay my dues because I, I had a BL's ticket at one stage and, and Lisa was doing it for me. And just this lovely little young girl at the time, a snip of a girl, you know, and nowhere would I have thought that she would have been sitting alongside us in the safety unit with such that brain mm. that she could listen and bang, she'd write something out. She was a big loss, I tell you. She really was. Um a lot of the success we was having with the safety unit can be attributed to her. Yeah. Yeah, I got quite a few speeches to um, those safety in action things. 
I remember one, we had a lot of fatalities. I think we had about 15 or 20 in that one year. Yep. 98 into 99. Uh, and I was, to some extent, I was in a little bit of a, a brain sort of, it, it was getting to me. And we wrote out a speech, uh, sat down with police and we wrote out this speech. I went to the chaplain and we borrowed his candle, this candle thing. We put a, candles for each one who had died. And, you know, after I'd given them and had a go, roasted, because the, they were nearly all bosses sitting there anywhere, we called the name out for each one of our workers, our mates who had died, mm. and blew a candle out. We had the candles burning all the way through. And when I looked around to see bosses cry, I thought, we're getting somewhere. Mm. We've shown them this is what happens, you know, and some of the families were sitting out the front. But uh, the 18 months we went without any fatality, I think that was, uh, to a large extent, the safety unit and the, and the, shop, uh, the safety and shop stewards meetings because they were right on the pool for a while and they were really, you know, until... Until the powers that be t- decided to stop it, uh, eighteen months without fatality. You think of it, and then they went and gave me an award after that. And I've, as I said at the award fit night, it's safety reps who got this, not me, yeah. because they did. Yep. So that's something I think the union's got to keep going, no matter what that safety structure. Yeah. So just finishing on that point, perhaps is the industry safer than it used to be? No. I don't think so. Uh, oh, yes, safer than when we first started, most definitely. Is it a safe industry? Uh, no. It's safer than when we started, but the building industry is not a safe industry. The very nature of building and construction, uh, it's got its hazards associated with it, right from the very first soil being dug up to when you do even a refurbishment or just an internal clean-up. It's, it's got its hazards. Where you've got machinery, uh, you've got plant. You've got structures being erected around you, above you. You've got riggers working above, cranes all over the place. It's not a safe industry. I'd say it's safer than it was when I first started in the industry and when a lot of us first started, but it's not a safe industry. You've got to be on the ball all the time. I mean, that's my view. No, I agree, Pat. Um, you know, like today, you can go out onto any site. The, the amount of times we'll go out... And, you know, it's, it's something's dropped from somewhere or something's, you know, fallen, crashed, and it's only sheer luck that somebody was standing there five minutes earlier and then they've moved for some reason. Um, otherwise, there would be a fatality or there would be another Listen, know, I've done serious it, I've injury. done it myself. Yeah. At um, a place in Altona, I think they called it Cyanamid, when we were building out John Brown's construction. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were putting steel work up. I think it was Cyanamid. Who was it? Borden's Chemicals. I think it was the chemical. Some sort of reactor had been put in and it blew up overnight and the first, you know, the first sort of commission, <laughs> the bloody thing blew up. And I'm down there as a go-getter rigger, you know, didn't know stuff all, but I'm a rigger. Footscray cranes were there. And uh, I'm up there with uh, my, my shifter scaffold thing up on the top there. And the way I was standing, the shifter fell out and landed on the boilermaker's head below me. See, it happens. That's right. Uh if he hadn't have had his hard top on, yep, he was working on this angle iron work platform, which they'd knocked up on the job. That's how it was in those days. Yeah. Not a scaffold, <laughs> just a frame which it hooked over. He's working on that, and I'm above him climbing up the framework. So easy. It's, it's so, so easy. Yeah. You know? 
Mind you, after that, I didn't have a shift around my belt. <laughs> I nearly had it fit over my head. <laughs> right so we've gone a couple of hours, Patrick. Have we? I didn't know I could talk so much. And you were getting a little bit concerned about what you were going to talk about. Yeah, I couldn't think. Well, once the brain clicks in, brother, it just kept going. And on behalf of the listeners, this has been a terrific experience because the amount of detail... The range of issues covered, it's been a terrific interview. Thank you very much indeed. So we've been listening to Pat Preston. Pat Preston started off uh, in construction as a inverted commas rigger <laughs> and ended up uh, seeing out uh, a very long and distinguished career and uh, finished up with the CFMEU Occupational Health and Safety Unit at the point where it was having a real effect and... Uh, Pat's got his doubts, of course, about the ongoing safety of the industry, but that's a matter that uh, younger people are going to have to deal with. Patrick, thank you very much, and also thanks to Peter Clark for sitting in and uh, helping the conversation get along. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Ralph. You have been listening to Creatures of the Industry on Community Radio 3CR. And the labour power we sell me boys for a hard and weekly pay Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA And whether we were born here or born in Italy In Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji We all of us are workers united, we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains and break a couple of concrete pours to back our log of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.